Well, good morning, family. Good to see you this morning I, uh, as I look around. I, I love holidays. Uh, we're in the midst of a study in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week, we were at the end of chapter 4, and uh, we were seeing there Paul's response to a concern that these believers had. The folks in Thessalonica, it was a church that was filled with young believers. Uh, they were young in the Lord. The church had not been around very long, at most maybe about a year. And um, they had some, some concerns about uh, what happens to believers who die. They've been looking forward to the return of Christ and, and they realized that, wait a minute, what if some of our, our folks die before Jesus comes back? Do they miss out on anything good? That's actually a contemporary question as well for many folks. What happens to believers who die? You know, are they missing out in some way? And the answer was no. And Paul laid out there in chapter, the end of chapter four, three uh, critical truths about our future, things to give them comfort as they, as they mourn or, or actually told the, this is the comfort to help them to not grieve as those who have no hope, but to give them assurance in the hope we have in Christ. And those three truths were that Jesus will descend from heaven and there's going to be a resurrection. The dead in Christ, it says, will rise first and meet the Lord in the air. There's also going to be, he says, a rapture. The text says that all living believers will be caught up or snatched away. That's literally the word rapture, to meet the Lord in the air. And in doing this, as we saw back in chapter 1, in verse 10, Jesus uh, delivers them from the wrath of God that is to come. And then thirdly, He says there will be a reunion. We'll be reunited with one another and with Jesus forever. And so as we come here to chapter 5, and I'm sure most of you know by now that as you've studied the Word of God that chapter markings are not like in books like we normally think. You come to a new subject when you get to a new chapter. In the Bible, chapter markings weren't part of the original text. They were added by translators later. They help us find where we are. But sometimes they place those chapter markings in inconvenient places and, and uh, they break up what really is a continuing or a single thought. In this case, the, the Apostle Paul is just continuing where he left off. The, so the, the theme as we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 5 is the same thing, theme as where he left off, dealing with what's coming in the future. Verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. For them, as it is for us today, there's always lots of curiosity about the future. We want to know uh, what's going to happen in the future, and we want to know when things are going to happen in the future. And Paul addressed, as I said last week, one question. There apparently is another question, at least, maybe several. And yet Paul, in answering their questions here, he curiously responds with, you have no need to write you anything. In other words, the, whatever the question is that you have, whatever 
they're concerned about, the information is unnecessary. I have no need to write you about this. It's kind of an odd thing to write. Wonder why? Well, the text gives us some answers, I think. The first is, typically our questions about the future are what and when. About the when, Paul lets us know, not directly, but I think indirectly, that it's an unanswerable question. See, the times and the seasons, it's interesting that Paul uses the exact phrase that Jesus used. If you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Uh, he's there with the disciples. They don't know He's going to ascend to heaven yet. But they're standing there talking on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples ask the question, Lord, is it now that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' reply is, it is not for you to know the times or seasons. There's that same phrase that Paul just uses here. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. In other words, if I'll put it in our vernacular, it's above our pay grade. That's not something that we can answer. Jesus had told the disciples not long before that, up in the upper room on the Mount of Olives, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, He says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Paul can't write to these folks about the when because you can't tell when if we don't know it and if God's not telling it. There is no answer to that. It's an unanswerable question. And so Paul says that's information I don't need to write you about because there is no answer. Now about the what's going to happen, Paul has a very specific answer here. He says, again, there in... Um, he says, you are fully aware. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you are fully aware. Another way of saying that is, the knowledge you have is perfect. It's complete. I don't need to write you anything about this because you already know everything you need to know. See, there's a lot of things that we want to know but they're not things that we need to know. Everything we need to know, God has told us right here. And these folks had some questions, perhaps, but Paul says, you don't need anything else written because I've already told you. Fortunately for you and me, Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, you don't need more information, but I'll go over again what you need to know. He reviews it, and that's good because otherwise we'd be left in the dark. What is it that you and I need to know about what's coming? Pick it up again in verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. First thing that you and I need to know is we need to know that the day of the Lord is coming. That little phrase, the day of the Lord, is not something that Paul made up. You need to understand, if you're not aware of this, that it's something that is all through the Scriptures. It's actually a great study. Take a concordance and look up, or, or actually 
most of you don't use concordances anymore. You have electronic things. It's great. Take your Bible software, type in quotation mark, day of the Lord, and see what pops up. Because what you're going to find out, there's a lot of stuff. It is a big theme in Scripture. A major theme in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, for example, wrote this. He said, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Over in the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, he wrote this in chapter 1, The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of the Lord is that day. Excuse me. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring distress on mankind so they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. The prophet Joel writes in chapter 2, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That's just a small sampling. We could read more from Isaiah. We could read more from Zephaniah. We could read more from Joel. And not only from them, we can go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 30. We can go to the book of Amos chapter 5. We can go to Obadiah. We can go to Zechariah chapter 14. We can go to Malachi chapter 4. It's a big theme in the Old Testament prophets. But it doesn't stop there. We can come to the New Testament. And again, you'll find the day of the Lord mentioned in the New Testament. Passages like Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He mentions that the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, of course, talking here to the Thessalonians in this letter. In the next letter, 2 Thessalonians, that he writes to these folks, he mentions the day of the Lord. The Apostle Peter writes in his second letter, chapter 3, speaking of the day of the Lord. Scripture could not be clearer. There is a day of the Lord that is coming. Three things. Paul wants us to know here in this passage about the day of the Lord. Let's see what they are. The day of the Lord is coming. Verse 2 again. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
Three things in those verses about the coming of the Lord that we ought to take note of. The first is that it will come like a thief. Now, I can't say this for sure because I haven't gone around and checked, but I have a feeling that most of you, last night when you went to bed, you locked the front door to your house and the back door, maybe the garage door. You locked the doors to your house at night. Why do you do that? I'm pretty confident most of you do because you understand that it's at night under cover of darkness when they have the element of added sneakiness and surprise when you're least expecting it, when you are vulnerable, that's when the thief is going to strike. That's when they're most likely to strike. And so we lock our doors. Paul says, once you understand that the day of the Lord is going to be like that, not that Jesus is a thief, but rather that His coming will be like a thief coming when it is sudden, when it is unexpected. In fact, instead of people being concerned about God and being concerned about God's judgment, people will be saying peace and safety. All is well. We're safe from man and we're safe from God. People think they've got their bases covered. You know, it's interesting that just reading the passages I read already this morning, they're not ones you hear very often in church, are they? We don't talk very often about the moon, stars going dark, the heavens going dark, clouds and thunder and lightning and the earth shaking ahead of the dreadful and awful and fearful day of the Lord. We don't talk about that or like that much, do we? You know, I think that sometimes we're afraid to sound like that, you know, all the cartoons where they have the guy with the beard and the little placard, you know, the end of the world is near. And people think those are nutcakes, fruitcakes, wackos. That's what the world thinks when you talk about judgment. But the Bible's clear there's a coming day of the Lord. He will come like a thief when people are not expecting it at all. And our world does not expect it. It's a day, the other thing he wants us to see, verse 3, that sudden destruction comes when. The day of the Lord comes, it will be a period of great destruction. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the, what's called often the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is teaching His disciples and He's talking about His, His return to earth, His coming in power and great glory. He does not use there this phrase, the day of the Lord, but as He describes His he is coming again. He clearly uses the language and the description of the day of the Lord. These, these, are, these happen, they're tied together. The day of the Lord in, encompasses the whole of what's coming in the future, beginning with judgment upon the earth and the return of Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of His kingdom. That's what this day of the Lord, as you go through the Scriptures, you see all these elements in it. It's not just a day. It's a period of time. And Jesus says there in Matthew 24 about His return to earth, He says, for there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. 
But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. He goes on a few verses later and says that immediately after the distress of those days is when He returns. Great destruction. The book of Revelation, chapter 6 through chapter 18, details in many graphic ways the great the horrors of the vast judgments which will be unleashed upon the earth during the day of the Lord and before Jesus' return in Revelation chapter 19. It is not the stuff of wackos and fools. This is the promise of God. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief and there will be great destruction. In verse 3, he goes on to say, as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. The day of the Lord is coming and there is no escape. Like labor pains, I have never had those, but I've been around. I've heard about them. They do start unpredictably. We know that they're going, I mean, if someone's pregnant, the end of the pregnancy, there's labor pains. We know they're coming, but there's no way to say when they're going to begin. But when they do, from what I hear, they can't be ignored. They can't be delayed or avoided. When your wife is pregnant and she says, oh, they're starting, you can't say, well, honey, you know, it's kind of an inconvenient time. Can you just kind of shut that down for a little while? You know, let's wait till the game is over. <laughs> you know, let's, let's wait till, you know, after dinner. No, when they start, they start and they, they, it seems that they start suddenly and they, when they start, they continue growing in more and more severe. They move forward and progress irreversibly. He says, the day of the Lord is like that. Judgment will fall certainly. There will be no hiding and there will be no escape. Those are somber, sobering words. Frightening. If you do as I've done this week and go on and look up these passages and read through the passages in Scripture about the day of the Lord, realize this is frightening stuff. So then the question is, what are we to do? Again, Paul is reviewing information with them and perhaps it's review for you. For some of you, you may be saying, I've never heard any of this stuff before. It's very clear here in Scripture. What are we to do? Paul says, verse 4, he answers the question, what are we to do? You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not in darkness, you are in light. And we are to live in light, not in darkness. In, in, in the Bible, you're probably aware that darkness in the Bible is a metaphor, a picture of a person who is living apart from a relationship with God. A person apart from God, the Bible says, is in darkness. 
But a person, when they come into relationship with God, when they, when they believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that they move out of darkness and they're moved into His glorious light. To live in relationship with God is often in the Bible referred to as walking in the light. First John uses that expression a lot. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. As believers in Jesus Christ, He says we're in the light. Metaphorically, we're not in the dark. In other words, we're not ignorant. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen in the future because God has told us there is a coming day of the Lord. Jesus Christ has said, I am coming back. Therefore, He says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. It's not for us to know, as we already read from Acts 1, it's not for us to know the times or the seasons. We don't know when, but we can know this for certain. He is coming back. It can be before lunch. It can be... And I hate to miss the dinner tonight. But you know what? It would be better to go right now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. Paul certainly thought, as we noticed last week, that it could be in his lifetime. We are now almost 2,000 years closer. What I know is it's coming. Any moment. Jesus says, since you don't know when it's coming, be ready. Be ready all the time. We're not to be like unbelievers who don't, don't know they need to be prepared or they've dismissed it thinking, bunch of weird, wacko, religious freaks with their imaginations. We understand it's truth. So don't live in the dark. Be ready for Jesus' return. But what does that look like? How do we live in the light? How do we live ready for Jesus' return? Well, Paul answers the question. Verse 6. We're going to see here in these next verses four essentials to being ready for Jesus' return. Four essentials to being ready for the day of the Lord. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep away and keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Again, he's saying what happens at night shouldn't be what happens with us. What happens with us, we're the people of the day, we're the people of the light, and we should live differently. The first thing in his list about being different, he says, is let's not sleep. In other words, wake up. Stay awake. He's not talking about not going to sleep physically. Well, some of us may be on Sunday morning at this time, a little bit before lunch, we're tempted to fall asleep, take a nap. He's talking about here not sleeping spiritually. Again, it's a metaphor. Don't go to sleep spiritually. In sleep, when we physically sleep, we are ignorant, we are unaware of what's going on around us, right? Right? I was a youth pastor for over 20 years. 
I understand that going to sleep is dangerous when you're with kids. You never know what will happen. So I always made sure I was the last one to sleep. Tried to be one of the first ones up, even though I'm not a morning person. Because sleep is dangerous around kids. See, because you don't know what's happening. You don't know what trouble they're getting into out there or if they're going to paint something on your face or stick your hand in a bucket of warm water or whatever it is they like to do. So he says, see, the sleeping person is not aware of what's going on. When we go to sleep spiritually, we become, we become uh, indifferent to what's going on around us. We really don't care. We become apathetic, unconcerned. He's saying that's not an option. When you and I understand that there's a day of the Lord coming, it should change our perspective of life. It should change our priorities. Apathy is not an option. It should move us to not get preoccupied with stuff that is of little or no concern. The great old preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this text a couple of centuries ago, painting word pictures of the tragedy of a sleeping Christian. One of the things he said is, a city suffers under the plague. We've never had a plague like those old ones they used to have. Thousands of people dying says, a city suffers under the plague with an official walking the streets calling, bring out the dead. See, so they could load them on carts and take them out of the city to dispose of the bodies. says, bring out the dead, bring out the dead. All the while, a doctor with the cure in his pocket is inside sleeping. says, another picture of what it's like is a prisoner in his cell who's awaiting being led to execution. His heart is terrified at the thought of being hung by his neck. Dying, terrified of death. Terrified of what awaits him after death. All the while, a man with a letter for his pardon is in another room asleep. He says that's what it's like if you and I as believers understanding there's a day of the Lord coming and it's a day that brings judgment to unbelievers and we just go on living as if it's not so. In other words, as people of the light, being awake means that we will be concerned not to waste our time and not to waste our resources but rather to invest them in the one mission Jesus left for us to do before He returns. I quoted earlier from Acts chapter 1, verse 7, where He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons about what's coming with the kingdom. What's the next verse? But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't worry about what's coming in the future in terms of being concerned about when's it going to happen. All the details, he says, be busy on the mission. Be my witnesses. It's exactly what motivates the Heinz to say we're leaving comfort and security of good jobs and family and friends 
even safety and willing to go to a place where we lay it all on the line because there are people there who have not heard of Jesus Christ. There's some two billion people in the world today who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 7,000 people groups, as they mentioned earlier, and only 3% of the missionary force going to those unreached peoples. Brothers and sisters, that ought to break our hearts. Because Jesus has said, Go. Go make disciples. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep being focused on all the silly stuff. Don't be, don't be lulled to sleep and indifferent about what's important. Another thing he says is be sober or self-controlled. He contrasted to being dr- drunk. And, and again, drunk here is not about physically drunk so much as it's, again, a spiritual metaphor, a picture for a spiritual problem. A person who is physically drunk, they have cravings, they have desires that, that drive them to indulgence which moves them into loss of control and a distorted view of the world and reality. That same thing happens to you and me spiritually when we allow our desires to drive and control us. They drive us into indulging ourselves and leading into loss of control of our appetites and ourselves and a we end up with a distorted view of life and the world and what's valuable. A person who lives their life for fun, a believer, one who claims to believe in Christ, and they live their life for fun, they live their life for pleasure, they live their life for entertainment, that person is not a sober person. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to have fun, we're not supposed to laugh, we're not supposed to be happy. Those are all biblical, wonderful things. But as people of the light, we are called to a higher purpose than simply to live for pleasure or live for passion. We are to be driven by our love for Jesus and we are to be controlled by the principles and the priorities of His Word. In verse 8, we find the third thing we need to do if we're going to be prepared for the return of the Lord. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul says, get dressed. But you'll notice that he doesn't suggest that you and I get dressed in a tuxedo. He doesn't suggest that we put on a bathing suit. He says, put on armor, a breastplate and a helmet. Breastplate is like, it's the old-fashioned version of the modern-day bulletproof vest. Our soldiers and our law enforcement officers today wear a bulletproof vest. Why? Because this protects vital organs. So it was for the breastplate for the soldier of that day. That's what protected you from the arrows and spears and swords and knives. It it helped protect you. Obviously, again, it's a picture. It's a metaphor. What is the, the breastplate a picture of? He says, it's the breastplate of faith and love. How is faith and love important to you and me? If we're going to, if we're going to thrive and survive in our, in our faith, 
We need, first of all, to have faith and trust in God. Not just saying faith that says, yes, I trust Jesus as my Savior, but more than that, it's the faith and the trust that says, I believe God is true, I believe God is good, I believe God has our best interest at heart. If you are anything like me, you understand that sometimes that's tough. Do you ever get tempted to question that God is good or that He's, He really knows the right thing? I mean, we wouldn't say that in church. But we think it, don't we, sometimes? Well, God, I know you say don't do, but, right? My situation's different. God, I know you say we should do, but... So that's how the first sin came about. Satan got Eve to question the goodness of God. God really didn't say that, did He? God really didn't mean that, did He? God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. And we start thinking that way, it leads us into sin. So, to protect the vital organs, one of the things we need to do is put on the, the breastplate of trust, of faith. I believe You, God. I'll take You at Your Word. I don't always understand it. I may not even like it, but I'll believe You. And love. See, the reality is if, if we love God and if we love people, that will motivate us to do the right thing. If, on the other hand, we're doing the opposite and we're thinking of ourselves and we are selfish, it will motivate us to do the wrong thing every time. Put on the breastplate of faith and love. It will protect your spiritual vital organs. The other thing they had to protect was the head, so you put on the helmet. That's the other important thing to protect. And here he says, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Not just the helmet of salvation, but the hope of salvation. And by hope, he doesn't mean, I wish for or hope I'm saved. I hope I'm going to heaven. But rather the assurance that I'm saved. That's what hope means. So I'm sure I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Why is that important? Because if I know I'm going to heaven, I have confidence and courage to live faithfully. Paul goes on to say in the, in the next two verses, look at verse 9. In 10, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. See, Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for us so that we could have life in Him. Because of Jesus Christ, we are not destined for wrath, but we are instead destined, we are pointed to heaven. We can have confidence in that. And that's what gives our brothers and sisters around the world in places like the Middle East, in places like Pakistan, in places like Vietnam, in places like North Korea, where their life is on the line literally as a believer. It gives them the courage to live boldly and faithfully for Jesus when they have put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. So Paul says if we're going to live ready for the, for the day of the Lord, we need to stay awake. We need to be sober, self-controlled. We need to get dressed with spiritual armor. By the way, notice that armor is not offensive armor, it's defensive by the way, the fact that he tells us that it's armor 
and not the swimsuit, not the tuxedo. He's letting us know that living for Jesus isn't going to be a picnic. It's not going to be a ballroom dance. It's not going to be a day on the beach. It's going to be a battle. We need to stay alert, sober, and we need to be prepared with spiritual armor. One more thing. Verse 11. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you're doing. If we're going to be ready for the return of Christ, for the day of the Lord, we need to be encouraging one another. This, brothers and sisters, is why we need to be here. This is why we need to be in the church. We need to be in church. We need to gather together. We need to be connected to one another. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but it's it's here again. Because when we're separated, when we're on our own, we are vulnerable. We easily become discouraged and we easily easily become disheartened. And we fall. We need to be together. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote this. Very similar, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, even back in the first century, there are some folks who who would say, you know what? I really don't need to go meet with the church today. I don't need to be there with the brothers and sisters. Tempted to stay home. He says, don't give up meeting together. Some folks are in the habit of that. Don't be that because we need to be together to to consider how we can love one another more, how we can spur one another on so we can give each other a little spiritual kick in the seat of the pants or a little comforting arm around the shoulders. Hey, brother, hang in there to encourage one another. We need that. We are in a day and time where it's never been easier to, you know, to hear a sermon. You can go home today. You can listen to, you know, five hundred preachers better than me, just on the click of a button on your smartphone or your radio. You can hear better music than we can play here. Our musicians are great, by the way. I'm not dissing them. Why do we come to church? It really, while, while a message is important, while music and worship is great, the reason we come together is we need to connect and encourage one another. It's vitally important. You can't do that over the Internet. We need one another. Paul says if we're going to be if we're going to live in the light if we're going to live faithfully and live well until the day of the Lord these are things we need to do stay awake be sober get dressed encourage one another one more thing I want to notice there's an important little thread running through this passage that you may not notice at first glance. 
But there is a contrast, an important distinction that runs through this whole passage. You'll see there's a difference between the we and the us and the they and the them. He says of us that we are in the light, but they are in the darkness. Back in verse 3, he says the, the judgment, the sudden judgment will come upon them and they will not escape. But down in verse 9, he says of us that there is salvation and eternal life. For them, the most dreadful day ever is the day of the Lord. For us, the most glorious day ever is the day of the Lord. Which raises a huge question. Are you one of the we and us or are you one of the they and them? I would submit that's the most important question you could ever ask. Because there is a day of the Lord coming. And if you're not one of the we and us, then the question is, how do I get moved from the category of they and them into the we and us? The Bible could not be clearer. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. If you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and trust, you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is what the Scripture calls for you and invites for you to do today. There is a day of the Lord coming. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Father God, There may be somebody here this morning who for the first time has heard it said in a way they understand and they realize they have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Pray even in these moments then they would just simply express to You, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I am destined for judgment, not for salvation. They right now will place their trust in Jesus. Father, the majority of folks here, I imagine, long ago made that choice to trust in Christ. They placed their faith in Him. He is our Savior. They've been moved out of the they category into the we category. But there's a great danger here or else Paul would not warn us. There's a danger that we will be those who are in the light but who live like we're in the darkness. Instead of being awake, we've been lulled to sleep. We've got our priorities messed up. Our values skewed. We are consumed with the unimportant. We've neglected the mission. We have gotten drunk, carried away by our desires and 
ruled by our passions, seeking living for our pleasure and for stuff and living for everything except living for You. Lord, if that's any of us here this morning in these few moments, may we understand the foolishness of that and the horror of that. For we have become useless. You have left us here for a purpose and for a period of time until the day of the Lord comes. Lord, may we be those who are found faithful. And may we be busy, not only in the mission, but busy encouraging one another until that day comes. In Jesus' name we pray.